This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Get ready, Ohio. FanDuel, America's number one sports book, is coming to the Buckeye State. And to kick things off, you can get started with $100 in free bets as an early sign-up bonus. Plus, when you sign up today with promo code OHIOFD, you'll be all set when FanDuel goes live in Ohio. Then you can bet on all your favorite teams in all your favorite sports with $100 in free bets. Just download FanDuel's top-rated sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Ohio, this is your chance to get in on the action. Join today with promo code OHIOFD. Make every moment more with FanDuel, official sportsbook partner of the NFL. 21 or older and present in Ohio. Bonus issued in non-withdrawable free bets that expire seven days after FanDuel accepts its first real money sports wager in Ohio. one Unique user identity verification required. Offer ends on the go-live date. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Introducing the Lowe's List for Innovation. While our aisles are filled with innovative products, we've selected our favorites just for you. Like the exclusive Whirlpool washer with industry-first two-in-one removable agitator. We love this washer because you can customize any load. And with other smart features to streamline your laundry routine, this product is a must-have for families. Shop the full Lowe's list of top picks at Lowe's.com. Lowe's, home to any budget, home to any possibility. U.S. only. Some cars are comfy on the inside but don't have power on the outside. And some cars have the horsepower but none of the comfort. I used to think there weren't any cars that were the total package. But that all changed when I got my Honda SUV. It's rugged and sophisticated. And right now, Honda has deals on the entire Honda SUV lineup. CRV, HRV, Pilot, Passport, you name it. So if you're looking for a car that's the total package, the only place you'll find it is at your local Honda dealer. Hurry before they're all gone. All right, it's another episode of Film Study with Ken McCusick, an early April episode. Ken, how are you doing? Life's good, Josh. How about you? It's baseball season, so I'm really excited to uh, to talk football today, even though it's baseball season, so I'm <laughs> yeah, doing well. How about that opening day, huh? That uh, was a whole lot of fun, and I cannot remember the last time we had weather on opening day as beautiful as it was this past week. Yeah, it was, it was really nice. Uh, one thing really bothered me about the game was the way the, the blown save in the ninth inning bothered me. And, and it wasn't all on Brock because he had some bad luck, obviously, in that situation. But it brings up a, an interesting point that I don't know why other teams can't do. 
is why you don't have a secondary closer role. And how that would work is you have somebody, Brock was in the game, and he's obviously laboring in terms of his pitch count. He's up to 27, I believe, before the, the Rosario came up and get the tying hit. Was Rosario, right? Yeah, sure. Okay. And I'll, anyway. I'll go with it. <laughs> he was up to 27 pitches already, which is way too many for a reliever to throw in an inning. And, you know, it was, it was a point where they really should have had somebody else in the game. They stuck with him. He ended up 34 pitches, only 18 strikes in that. And, and what bothered me was they didn't have somebody else that could get up after five pitches, say. And it would be something you do automatically. Your secondary closer is not as good as your primary closer, but he's available and you can, you can bring him in after – you can set him up to, to uh, warm up after five pitches. And then he's available if your if you're closer is struggling through 20 pitches. So anyway, yeah, I would say um, you're reading way too much into one game and one inning when there's a whole long season. And it, but it will be interesting to see what the Orioles do because I don't really think there's any need to define a closer position until Britain's back. If you don't have a guy as dominant as Britain, then just let whoever's the hot hand at the moment uh, continue to pitch in the ninth and forget treating it like a, like a special position. Oh, that, that's fine. I don't have any problem with that. I still kind of like the idea because it's such a high leverage situation that you have two pitchers assigned in that sure. inning to one as the back of life. Anyway, we'll get on. We'll talk football. I, I apologize yeah, you, for the digression. We, we've got a guest here waiting to talk football, and, and you're trying to talk about uh, a baseball game that happened a couple yeah. of days ago. And one of our favorite guests. We have Dev Panchois uh, on Russell Street Report. Uh, does the battle plans piece. Dev, we're uh, thrilled to have you again on the show. Uh, Absolutely. And, and I'm glad to be here in person this is this is nice so we'll be able to actually see each other and we should have less talking over each other yeah. than we have on the phone <laughs> that would be good yeah all right well fantastic dev we're, we're happy to have you and, and the topic today is about the 2018 defense and wink martindale of course don wink martindale is, is taking over after six years of dean Pease. and one of the things, of course, that comes up is that the Ravens and certainly their fans would like a much more aggressive defense, and uh, Martindale promises to be that, being a disciple of Pease. Uh, sorry, a disciple of Ryan. Mm-hmm. Right, and that, that's what I'm excited to hear from you guys about, because everyone likes to glorify the Ryan defense. But when I look at it, I see, well, you had three Hall of Famers on that defense. So uh, I don't know if Ryan would have had the same luck without those three guys. So I'm excited to hear you guys talk about this defense and uh, how it can translate to 2018. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's a, that's a good point, Josh, uh, that they did have talent. But it's interesting, we, you know, you know, we're going to talk about this later, Ken, but there were stretches when they didn't have those guys either. Through injury and Ed yeah. Reed being out, Ray Lewis being out in, in certain scenarios and how did Rex adapt and sure. still have a defense that could – at the minimum, make plays. They might give up big plays, but they're going to make plays. And that's something you look at last year with the, the Ravens' defense. They made plays last year after being, you know, kind of called out for not being able to make plays. But that's the dif to me, that's a di big differentiator is that those defenses made tons of plays. Yeah, and they, they created opportunity and they converted those opportunities in the Ryan era very well. All right. right. Then, my, then the other follow-up concern would be it's been, I don't know, 10, 12 years does that still translate? The NFL is constantly changing, and uh, besides the style of play, the rules have changed. And do you think that the Ryan defense could get, around, get away and, and succeed today? 
I mean, I, I, my, I give my answer to that, and then I'd love to hear from Dev as well. I think defense needs variation, and this is something that comes up on our show from time to time. If the offense gets their average yards per play on every play, they march right down the field and score a touchdown every time. So mm-hmm. defense needs variation. They need penalties. They need turnovers. They need sacks. And mm-hmm. They need other negative yard plays in order to create three and four down sets, which gets the offense right. off the field. So to my way of thinking, the aggressive way of playing defense is the better way of playing defense. And the big plays you give up are part of the normal uh, construct of football and, and, and how defense has to get the other team off the field. Yeah, and if, well, and I think the, the Ryan defense was constructed on bringing numbers. And, and, and when you look at the top defenses right now that are able to apply pressure and, and you know, are dominating, it's Jacksonville. And, and that, that's like the first defense I can think of. But a lot of what they do is bringing that four-man rush and playing zone. Seattle did that for a stretch. So it's a fair question to say whether or not the style of defense can still succeed at the same level because you're relying on a lot of man-to-man coverage. And that coverage has changed in terms of the rules and the application of, of what, you know, what's pass interference now, what's penalty, like how much can you grab, how much can you be physical about the field. But I still think... By and large, you can. You, you just have to mix and mix it up a little more than what Ryan used to do with his casino-style all-out <laughs> pressures. I, I don't know if he can get away with some of the stuff that he did, and I don't think they're going to do that anyway. I mean, I think mm-hmm. Wink is—it's not a direct core, uh, direct one-to-one transfer, but I think you can do. You can you can bring in some of those traits, right? It's and, and I think amplify the pressures and, and get more aggressive. So I wanted to read one quote uh, before we go forward here from Wink, um, just to remind everyone that you know this kind of started back when Wink was introduced as a defensive coordinator, and he and he stated in contrast to Dean Pease, I think it's my personality I'd rather attack than I would sit back. We're always going to try to be the aggressors and dictate the game to opponents, and that was in response, I think, to a couple questions about what's the differences mm-hmm. between him and, and Pease. Right. But, and I think that's what fans are excited about is, is that's a more exciting style of football to watch. And um, especially on a team that, that prides himself with defense. Defense can be boring sometimes, and an aggressive defense is exciting to watch. But uh, So why don't we get into that 2006 team? Okay, well, so let's, I, what I really want to talk about is the, the four Ryan years okay. are kind of like each different in their own way. So, so he was here as a defensive coordinator from 05 to 08. And just briefly, the 2005 team had a lot of injuries, a lot of issues on defense with penalties and some discipline issues. 2005 was the year of that horrible game at Detroit with 21 penalties. Where, oh, yeah. You know, we had two guys ejected. So it's a, it a various number of horrible things that Malice happened that in, year. The, in the heart, was it? Was, what was that statement by the yes. official? Yes, Malice in his heart. Yeah, Malice in yes. his heart. Was, I think it was Bart Scott getting kicked out of the game. Yes, the or, or Suggs, I think it was, I so those are the two. <laughs> but anyway, the uh, uh, the 2005 team also had significant injuries in the secondary. And the big thing that happened that year was Ryan played a lot of three defensive backs. And that's that was the origin of that scheme. 265 snaps in 2005. They had three defensive backs on the field. And that was typically uh, Deion Sanders in center field and the two cornerbacks. Mm-hmm. And they could do it because they had a Dillis Thomas. We'll get into a little bit of that later. 2006 is the apex of the Ryan era, as far as I'm concerned. Certainly in terms of talent, I think also in terms of results. They led the league in pretty much everything defensively, uh, went 13-3, and and then they had that horrible loss to the Colts. And we're going to talk more extensively about that. some of the things that happened that year, so we, won't, we don't need to do more that year. But I think people remember that fondly, and they remember that Colts game very unfondly, if, uh, 
Yeah, absolutely. Right. Okay. Yeah. The, the 2007 defense uh, went from, obviously, the peak of the mountain to the absolute trough. I call it the 2007 year the secondary of dying men. The mm-hmm. scene from Gone with the Wind where they, they pull out on the, on the street in Atlanta and there's all these dead men lying, or not dying men, but dying men right. on the ground lying, lying there. And a secondary just had injury after injury. They ended up with Willie Gaston picked up off the street right. starting two games at corner. Right. So, you know, it d- dug down real deep. And they lost to Dales Thomas that year as well, which, which killed them in terms of what they could do. Dales Thomas had a big year in New England, really his only big year in New England that year. And then uh, I think it fell off after that. It was yeah. it was really strange. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with Pease as a defensive coordinator. Yeah, great player. But uh, what he what he meant to the Ravens is is uh, I still think not appreciated today. And then the 2018 came in. And Deb, I know you've you've done a lot of watching of the 2008 mm-hmm. games recently. So defense was reborn, created a lot of opportunity of their own. Reed had his best year in 2008. 2004, he won Defensive Player of the Year. 2008, he should have. Uh, yeah, he, he really should have. He didn't get it, and uh, nine nine interceptions that year, I think. Um, might be including the postseason in that. To and, me, he made the greatest play in, the, in my mind, the greatest defensive play ahead of the Ray Lewis interception of Eddie George, the back, uh, going backwards center fielder style yard. with the Miami game. Yes. It's just remarkable, that play. And that play isn't talked about nearly as much as it should, for a making the interception and then being able to return it back, it's yeah. just it's Ed Reed in a nutshell. The way he set up that return, the most beautiful thing. Yeah. That, that play had everything. I thought yeah. we would be seeing that like every highlight for the I, next forty years. Exactly. Is we haven't seen it that much since then. I, I, I think it's right. so underappreciated. His uh, Philadelphia interception is played yes. more, and I don't. I don't think. Again, it's all it's it's comparing uh, Willie Mays uh, like catches. You guys are baseball fans. It's comparing the same thing to me. But a center fielder going back like that, and also setting up Chad Pennington in the first place, which he did the entire game. He had Chad Pennington spinning. Uh, so it was just one of the high, many highlights of that defense that year. Yeah. So that Miami team, I think, had only thirteen turnovers the whole year going into that game, and I forget That's if they right. had four or five against the Ravens in that game, but it was it totally turned their season around. And the Tennessee, the Tennessee team as well. The next week, they didn't have many turnovers too, mm-hmm. and, and got forced into I think four. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, anyway, this a brief. Review of the Ryanair. We talk a little bit about the characteristics of the Ryanair. Tell me where you'd like to start, Deb. We'll start wherever you would like to and work through that. Well, I, I think let's start with the 2006 defense uh, for, for now because I do think there's more similarities between the 2008 defense, and I think those are the two principal defenses mm-hmm. we wanted to touch on. Uh, the other two, the 2007 2005, are worth bringing up for some some aspects, I think, and some things we could see, and I think you'll have more insight into that in terms of what Wink may incorporate, like 46 principles and things like that. But I'd like to start with the 2006 defense and say right off the bat that, no, I don't think the personnel compares to what this team has going for it in 2018. I just think, you know, we're just so dominant, so skilled, pro bowlers everywhere, uh, you know, if we're, if we're saying, you know, if we're asking asking the question, do they have the personnel, the 2018 team, to c- c- kind of accomplish what that defense did? No, I don't think so. But there's some elements of it. But uh, I know you've watched a lot on the 2006 defense. So, what yeah. what are your thoughts? I, well, I've just been through it again, and and the the. 
thing that really stands out above all else is what Adelis Thomas did for the team because mm-hmm. the, the, out of necessity in 2005, we just mentioned it, they had to play 265 snaps of three defensive back football. But out of choice in 2006, they played 102 snaps that way. So they're still playing it a mm-hmm. lot. I mean, three defensive backs is something you see now only in goal line situations, fourth and one, you know, really oddball, short yardage situations. But, uh, but then they, they played it out of choice, and they had no problem. If you put two receivers on the field against some teams, they were happy to just let you play that. And if you flexed out your tight end into the slot, they, they'd have a Dallas follow him. If they flexed out a running back, they'd have a linebacker or sometimes a Dallas follow him. But they had, uh, you know, they had options to cover that were not in, out of the secondary. And he's just such an underappreciated player. He had already been the, the defensive MVP or the MVP of the team in 2005, one mm-hmm. or two. And he was, the, he was the MVP of the team in 2006, even though he might not have actually gotten it. But it was his best season in 2006 by far. Uh, outstanding player, did so much for the team. And the, the way they could stop the run with eight heavies instead of having seven heavies on the field was a big advantage, and, and that particularly came up in that Chargers game that mm-hmm. we all remember. You know, they they played a whole bunch of four four against the Chargers, where they had you know the eight heavies on the field, and that's to also kind of negate the run and, and yeah. Ladainian Tomlinson. That's start, right. right. And so Tomlinson and Turner were on that team, and they were both yeah. very dominant. Tomlinson had thirty one touchdowns that year, which is still the right. NFL record. Yep. So uh, uh, Turner had a big year as well, and uh, and Philip Rivers was in his first year as a starter. So they they tried some things with him, and and they uh, sacked Rivers for the first time on their last offensive play of that game. So that right. was, uh, was a good uh, good game for the Ravens, and obviously one of the ones we really remember from the from Ravens history. Yeah, and I think with that defense as well, it's interesting when we think about those heavy packages. How does that translate to today's game? Where there's still going to be a lot of run-heavy attacks, but you have a lot more spread. You have a lot of teams coming out immediately in the gun, three wides. So mm-hmm. that's another thing to think about is, um, you know, I, I think, with, and we'll touch on this, I mean, the, the defense that the Ravens have right now in terms of how they're constructed, on the face of it with cornerback depth and, and more of a defensive back, I guess, heavy uh, packages and looks that they could have, that, that could work out. And I don't know that... You know, going back to the heavy packages, that that's necessarily something that has to translate um, in, in this era. I, I don't think I don't think it's something you do. I think it's a special advantage of that team. Uh, I'm sorry, Josh. Yeah, I was just gonna say. Yeah, when I think of the at least this past season of the Ravens, and I think if they tried to rush like this, I, the screen pass would tear them apart. It <laughs> seems because uh, they're already having trouble with that, and if they're coming in heavy, it seems like that's even more of a a, a downside to translating it to today's team. Yeah, it's an interesting point. Um, Terrell Suggs, in particular, is so savvy with regard to, to sniffing out the screen pass. I don't, I don't think Thomas was in his league as a screen pass defender. Uh, that would have been one of Thomas's few weaknesses on yeah. the football field. But, uh, but yeah, he was. Uh, that's that's an interesting point there, Josh. And I, you know, to get back to your point for a second, Dev, uh, the way teams run the spread and the way teams really like to run against the nickel out of a one back mm-hmm. set. I think you know they can force the nickel by putting three wide on the field. So so you then uh, have the opportunity to run against six heavies, and I think a lot of teams really like to do that. I know New England does, and there's there's certainly a lot of other teams who like to as well. The Ravens are still playing with a fullback a lot of the time, but <laughs> but uh, they do what they do. Yeah, no, that's a good point. You're right. Uh, that's what's turned into a lot of one back sets. 
offset shotgun uh, handoffs, mm -hmm. and your your running backs have to be adept at running uh, behind, not running behind fullback, but being able to run behind the the in a lighter box and, and find the holes that way. So it, if they if you have that setup, and, and in the case of the Ravens, they do like having the fullback and they like having that H back and and Boyle's that guy. But if they're not, then you look at a guy like a Kenneth Dixon. I know we're talking defense, but that's just one example of a Kenneth Dixon who could work better in those scenarios. But yeah, I think overall, uh, one of the other things I think would what we could say about these defenses is the linebackers' abilities made the, the not just Thomas but Jared Johnson, mm -hmm. Suggs, their ability to drop as well and kind of um, flood the inside zones, flood those middle areas, and really do a pretty good job at coverage. I mean, Jared Johnson very is very guy. underappreciated just yeah. with his and making the transition from defensive line to a linebacker that could play in a two-point stance mm -hmm. and and show rush drop. There's so much gamesmanship at the line, but that's because those guys could run, they could turn their hips, and they could run down the field and cover backs and tight ends if they needed to. Yeah, Jared Johnson, a really special guy, deserves to, deserves a lot of discussion just in this in terms of the 2006 and 2008 because his role is so different on those two teams. In 2006, he was still a situational pass rushing lineman who lined up most frequently over nose. And what, he, what I noticed from that season, I've never really seen from another inside defender, is that he would use two hands mm -hmm. very frequently to shove off. So he'd immediately get, it, get in a, in a three-point stance, look as if he was coming forward, get his hands on the defender, then push back into, into a drop. And right. the Ravens dropped two a lot, and, and, and one even when it was just him. And he created a lot of frozen offensive linemen in the middle just by getting his hands up on that in those situations. Didn't do it every time either, which was nice. But the mo mostly today, I think you see a lineman dropping from even from a three-point stance on the inside. Well, typically just drop. He's he's too worried about being slow right. to take that first step forward and push back. Right. And and uh, and it's uh, interesting. They, you, know, you get limited value obviously out of any defensive lineman who's dropped into a short zone. Yeah. But uh, but when you can when you get a frozen lineman and, and a little bit of coverage ability, Jarrett Johnson was really special. He had one and a half sacks that year. His only full sack came of Rivers on that last play that I mentioned. But his percentage of sacks when he was in the game was the highest of any Raven at 11.5% for that year. So uh, that was one of the really nice uh, things. And I remember I've heard him on a show saying that he was responsible for repositioning Trevor Price on a lot of places. Jared, I'm uh, going to say this on the radio. I don't know. <laughs> well, and the thing is, you need intelligent. That that group was so intelligent. Their football acumen and football IQ. No, uh, now comparing that to the group now, that's something that they would need mm -hmm. for Wink to really be able to execute some of the stuff. Is you would need a Matt, you would need a Judon or Bowser and some of these guys who have the physical capabilities and the and the skills potentially to be versatile. But do they have? the savvy, the IQ, to handle those zone fire drops and right. being able to put their hand on a guy and jam them before they release and just understanding those subtleties that disrupt the timing of the offense. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. They have Weddle and Suggs right now who are who are very cerebral defenders in their own ways of, in terms of that. Uh, you know, they Webb have, yeah. had some of that, but, but he's gone now. So we'll mm -hmm. see how that uh, how that goes. Whether a Tavon Young could step as a leader or uh, or somebody of that ilk. I'm sorry, Josh. We cut you off there. No, I'm good. You guys go ahead. I'm 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 sitting back today. You guys are in studio together. <laughs> you, you guys are the brains That's of this trouble, show. Man. It's I'm, trouble. I'm sitting it's back and letting you go in deep. I'm enjoying right, it. 
Well, ju- jump in whenever we're ready here. So uh, talk a little bit about the defensive packages in 2006. I did want to bring up some stats on that. And we can look at 2008 as well because we can see that the things change. The, uh, the numbers kind of change, and there's one player again who's responsible. Guess who that might be. But for defensive backs in 2006, they never played anything more than the dime. But even in 2006, they played 75 snaps of dime. It's a little misleading. It's well more than Pease played on average during during his years. He did play 20% dime in his last season, but uh, but uh, he only had a hundred dime snaps in the first five years. Wow! So that's that's not oh, much. Boy. So uh, uh, I, I'm sorry. That's in the first four years. A hundred dime snaps. Um, so anyway, they, they they played a lot more dime in the in the era. But we got to remember now, Adelis Thompson is on the field for every play. So when they have a dime on, they really have a quarter on. Yeah, and so it's yeah. it's everyone is has like one additional defensive back, or maybe you can call it a half if you want to, because they committed him as a rusher a lot of times. He wasn't always standing up; he was often in a three point stance. Uh, but anyway, that's that's something. And and what's what's really interesting is you can see there's a very levelized performance by the number of defensive backs they had. Uh, they did get more sacks, of course, um, with six defensive backs, as you'd expect, because it's going to be in passing situations all the time. But the, in terms of the turnover percentage, in terms of the yards per play, all very similar uh, with, the, with the number of defensive backs. And I just want to change for one, because I know you, you spent a lot of time on 2008 here. So we'll flip over to that year for a second and look at how the defensive back situation has changed. And you can maybe give us your opinion on, on how that happened. Just put up the regular season stats here. So this does not include the playoff games. But you can see uh, here we've got now 38 quarter packages being done, which is a, a, a fair number. Mm-hmm. They had uh, 62 in 2000 was the high point for the for the Ravens. And they had 62 dime snaps, which is a little low maybe, but some of those are, are quartered off. Tell us what's happening there. Well, I, I think it's, it's a combination of... So to me, it's there's some translation from 2006 to 2008, but I do... It's interesting that they had lesser corners in 2008 as the season wore on, that, mm-hmm. but still, they, I think they made better utilization of their safeties, the safety depth. That's what I saw. I mean, there's four safeties with Zipikowski and Nakamura, and then you got Leonard and you got Reed. And those four guys, at times, may have been on the field. You could correct me if I'm wrong, if they're on the field at the same time, but if not, you had at least three of those guys on the field, and in some sort of hybrid role, you'd have Zipikowski, Nakamura playing some slot or, or blitzing, and then you'd still have a nickel corner in, in there as well, the mix. You're, you're exactly right. Is that they, they played primarily a three-corner, four-safety right. quarter. And the dime is almost always three and three. But this team, very, rare, very unusually, played a four-corner uh, dime. And so they had Frank Walker they were bringing on the field particularly early in the year. Then Frank Walker actually took over for McAllister in that Miami game. Right. Corner. So The uh, infamous uh, McAllister <laughs> doghouse. I think he, he started the doghouse. He, he might have been Harbaugh's first inmate. Deputy dog. dog because yeah, deputy McAllister dog. is one of the, the great Ravens of all time. Top ten Raven of all time that should be in the Ravens Hall, uh, Hall of Fame. Ring of Honor. Yeah. So yeah, no, if, exactly though. That's that's just it. I mean, you had um, I mean, just looking at the numbers. I mean, looking at the names here. I mean, you have a struggling Samari Roll. You had Fabian Washington, who who was their best corner, you know, ultimately. But right. I mean, Ivy Ivy was their you know slot their, their slot guy. But yeah, they had a, they had they played a ton of safeties, and I thought did a nice job of utilizing their uh, personnel that way. And then in turn. That's how you're able to maintain your pressure packages as well. 
in, in third and in third and long in particular. So one of one of the things I noted in two thousand eight, uh, a lot of third and longs they brought uh, they brought numbers. They brought heavy blitzes. Yeah. They came after it. And sometimes you're conservative in those situations. That wasn't the case with Ryan. And they those pressures paid off, especially uh, in that Tennessee playoff game. A lot of third and longs, and they brought heavy pressures and, and forced Kerry Collins into mistakes. Right. I mean, they certainly did force a bunch of mistakes in that game. Uh, Leonard had the game, and he's, he's a unappreciated, Jim Leonard, an unappreciated uh, role in the 2018 oh, totally. team. He's, he's so versatile. He's able to come up in the box at times, but just really had great instincts. Again, played really well with Ed Reed. Uh, in the pantheon of all the safeties that have played with Ed Reed, I mean, Dwan Landry had his stretch. Sure. But I think Leonard and Reed were about as good of a combo yeah. as I can think of. With It was only one season, but that was, it yeah. was one great season. And then, if, if you remember, Rex Ryan went off to New York after 2008, and he took Mark Scott and, with him, and he took Jim Leonard, yeah. and... Leonard ended up being the defensive signal caller in New York, so yeah. it was a speaks to his yeah yeah he speaks to his abilities for sure. He had one of the greatest defensive postseasons of any Raven in history, and a lot of those happened in 2000, of course. But if particularly if you take out the 2000 team, I think Leonard is probably number one or number two. So it, the game against Tennessee was all Jim Leonard. He made plays all mm-hmm. over the field totally. to win that ball game, and. Uh, uh, you know, the, the fumble at the end of the half that, that, that saved him a field goal at least and, and a, lot, a lot of the other things that, that went on the game. He got a big pressure, a quarterback hit. Uh, anyway, we're, uh, we don't want to spend too much time on that, so let's go back. And what do we want to talk about next? We've got the pass rush to still talk about. That's a delicious topic here we ought to spend some time on. A lot that we can dissect on that. I mean, if you want me to dig in first, I can give a sure. couple of characteristics. So. We talked about the defensive back packages, and that's one element. So more blitzes from your DBs, and I think more late movement, right? So not really – I mean, one of the traits of a P's defense that I've seen a lot of is they declare, mm-hmm. and then they might change things up after the snap, post-snap. But you're seeing these guys coming up well before. I mean, quarterback has a chance to – uh, recognize it, and the good quarterbacks often burn the Ravens on those because they saw right. the same tendencies over and over again. So if you saw it, you know if you saw Weddle playing cat and mouse coming up to show blitz and then dropping, they were able to time it so, or or figure it out altogether about you know in terms of Weddle's um, ultimate you know play there. So that in that respect, I think the late blitz movement for Ryan's defenses, whether it's 2008 to me, 2008 really stood out because I just watched it more. But just right as the snap comes, you don't know who's coming from what because they're not really moving. Right. I mean, there's some movement. There's a ton of movement. I think 2006, there was a lot more. Mm-hmm. But, and you can't really tell who's coming and going. But then you've got these blitzes where you have a, you know six defensive backs or something on the field, and you don't know which – because they're not really showing anything. They're just able to, to really do a nice job of staying static in their movement, and then boom. They're, they're, they're coming at the snap. Right. There's, there's a couple things I go with that. I, I, first thing I'd say is that I thought the Ryan defenses did a good job of disguising movement, period, because there was a lot of back and forth, so there was a lot of Omaha in there, as I yeah. call it, you know, that there's some fake movement. But, but they did more than that, is that when they did try and get the slot guy or even an outside corner moving in to blitz, that they were okay doing that in the last couple of seconds 
when the play clock was running down and there wasn't really an ability to show it. So once you declare it late, right. you know, there's no chance to change it, so it's okay no. that you're declaring it late. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the subtle difference that I'm curious to see when Wink kind of executes this. And I'm curious to see also, just reading between the lines, again, from that initial interview that he did, that initial press conference, is that one of the things that, when you look at Pease's defense, I thought it was a major deficiency, is that their ability to disguise, their ability to be, I think, not tipping things, not not really selling as well before the snap and giving the offense and the quarterback more, t- you know, enough time to make an adjustment. Right. So I, I think that's, that's something that is a major trait. Um, you know, you, we talked about also, I think, one of the other, so late movements, and then uh, let me just double-check my notes really quick here. Use some more defensive backs. The stunts and line twists is something I also noted. Um, you, you mentioned something before the, we started recording, which was a great point, is that if you're blitzing and you're using heavier blitzes, you're not stunting and twisting and, and using line games as yeah. much because you're not rushing. You're not relying on your front as much, obviously. So I think if you do rely on your front and you have some three-man, even some three-man rushes. I thought Ryan did a nice job. Some creative three-man rushes where he would stunt and loop at times. But you can mm-hmm. you can clarify that. I mean, you have the you have the data. So I, I wanted to go through the 2006 and compare it to 2017, and just those two defenses. Mm-hmm. And I have several elements of deception that I record on every pass play. And the first is did they did they drop? Well, how many did they drop from the line of scrimmage? But every time they drop two or more, I consider that a deceptive element. The 2006 team dropped two from the line of scrimmage, two or more, 108 times in 17 games. And the 2017 team, 100 times in 16 games. Mm -hmm. Not much of a difference at all, obviously. So pretty similar there. Blitzes. Now, these are players coming from at least 1.5 yards off the line of scrimmage and at least or at least as wide as the slot cornerback. And if the slot cornerback Mm -hmm. declares early, he's no longer a blitzer. So if he comes in too early, he's he's a... Distinguished line. Yes. Guy. Okay. Okay. And so when you have the double A gap blitz set up, you know, you have six guys who are showing blitz and you might have two drops and you might have four coming and that's that's how I record the thing. Anyway, blitzes are the really interesting number. So the two thousand seventeen team blitzed hundred and twenty two times. A little more than seven times per game. Actually seven almost eight times per game. The the blitzes for two thousand six 332, 19.5 yeah, that's, per game. So, <laughs> that's insane. It, it is insane. Not surprising. <laughs> yes. They peaked out with 33 blitzes against P.J. Lossman in Week 17. Wow. And that wasn't even that many plays. Wow. <laughs> they had 27 against Roethlisberger in Week 16. They had 29 against Roethlisberger in the previous game. They, so that's why they sacked him 14 times that year. So anyway, that's the big difference is that is that huge number of blitzes. Now, we talked a little about stunts, and you mentioned that before. You have a choice to stun or a choice to choice to blitz, and you typically don't do both on the same play, though it's, occasionally you do. 66 stunts in 2006, 62 stunts in 2017. So very similar so there as well. That's stunning to me. Uh, I think they must have ramped up the stunts and twists, and it would be worth maybe a subsequent <laughs> next podcast discussion just on that topic alone because it's, it's one of the ones that I am strongly, you know, I, I'm strongly passionate about in the sense that they, they really should do more of it. Right. I, I agree. If you have the personnel to do it, I completely agree. And the 2016 was special in that Trevor Price could beat double teams as the underneath guy on stunts. And there wasn't a lot of need. But a lot of times they just were rushing four 
and having Price beat a double team. And it ended up being the Ravens sacked the quarterback 10% of the time with four guys rushing. It's it's unheard of yeah. that that would happen. So, how yeah, much, but, how much go does, ahead. So to, to be able to get away with this and all this deception as a pass rush, your, your run your run defense has to be really good too then right you've got it's got to be two-sided you can't be all on one correct yeah that's that's right i mean they did have a great rush defense that year haloti nada was a rookie the browns message boards have still not stopped talking about the mistake of trading down a spot and letting us get nada and then get cam wembley Oh, my God. Yeah, so it was, a, it, was a, it was a pretty big mistake on that part. I, by the way, we went to the game in 2006 at Cleveland, and somebody in front of us was wearing a Babatunde Oshinawa jersey, who was the sixth-round pick they got as the change in that deal. <laughs> so they'd already bought it custom. So it's 2006. This is the third game of the year, so they already had it. They were, they were wearing it, so it was pretty funny. But, it, but anyway, the, uh, uh, the Ravens got Nada. Nada immediately was the Ravens' best lineman, even though he didn't play – as much as some other players in the 2006 season. So for the whole season as a whole, the regular season anyway, he played 43.5% of the snaps, and Kelly Gregg was still playing 61.5% of the snaps. The next year that reversed because they were the team was about half a yard better with Nada on the field than they were with Gregg on the mm-hmm. field. So, uh, and that translated both run and pass. They were better. So uh, it, even though it was fighting words in Baltimore at the time because everybody thought you know, Kelly Gregg was an unrecognized uh, pro bowler, and he was a very good player, very productive tackler, uh, but Nada was just at another level in terms of his ability to contribute and, and draw double teams very, very regularly on defense that created opportunity for others. Yeah, and I think getting back to this, you, you do have to have... To- you have to stop the run on first down, second down, and you're getting to third and long. So it's it's definitely a key to being able to, to have more deception and being more exotic in your packages and your movement and all those things. So those two things go hand in hand. They stop the run really, really well. I think that'll continue. Uh, however, we've seen some some disappointing you know circumstances here with the, with the P's defenses in which in critical games, especially, they just haven't been able to uh, hold up against the run. That's right. I mean, they, they certainly they could. They didn't do it in the first Pittsburgh game. They got they got destroyed by a power run game where they were the Castro was pulling from right to left most of that game. The the 2016 allowed 3.5 yards per rush, and the and that was in the on the real places 3.3 when you count the kneels in there too. So I, people don't I don't consider them as real plays, but the, the 2017 team was the first Ravens team ever, ever in their history to allow four yards per carry. No, that's, so uh, it's, yeah. it's remarkable, but it's but it's also bad that it's the most recent data. Yeah, that, that's incredible. Yeah. No, and, and that just goes to show, I mean, that's going to be another thing that's kind of slipped under the radar, but they're going to have to do a better job. Um, when you have a team like a Minnesota that, that can just ground and pound you, uh, now Minnesota ended up opening up their passing attack later in the year, but that was one example where Case Keenum, you know, he's able to get, he's able to get contained, or they're able to kind of contain him within the offense because they're running the ball so well. So, can't have that happen again, and and then be able to step, and then want to be an aggressive defense. I think those two things have to go hand in hand. You have to stop the run to be an aggressive defense. Yeah. Before we move on to the 2017 defense, is there one player from, let's say, the 08 team that we haven't discussed yet that you want to discuss their role and how special that was? 2008. Uh, well, I, you know, one of the guys that we haven't touched on is Bart Scott. I know you had said that he had a better 2006 versus 2008 defense. I think Scott's ability to blitz mm-hmm. in 2008, 
even though, yeah, he might not have been as good, but they don't have, I mean, right now, and we're going to get to 2017, there's nothing anywhere resembling a Bart Scott yeah, type right. of guy. Like, we've talked about AD. I think there's still some components of AD in some of the personnel they have. They have nothing that I can see, other than if you want to say Mosley one-to-one, but I, I just don't see, you know, Bart Scott's ability to come on the blitz was tremendous, uh, and, and it added to the pass rush. That was an underrated element of the pass rush to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in 2006, it was a huge element of the pass rush. Scott had nine or nine and a half sacks, I forget which, but he blitzed all the time, and he's lightning quick, very understanding of the opportunity. And, and I watched 2006 again, I'd watched 2008 prior to that, and or the most recent prior to that, I should say, and I don't remember Bart Scott being nearly as fast. And then all of a sudden, he's, he's lightning quick in 06. Uh, tremendous timing. Yeah. And, and getting back to the late blitz movement. Mm-hmm. And Ray did a good job, too, might I add. So, mm-hmm. And Ray, is like, you're gonna have, he's going to be good at it because he just understands everything so nuanced. But Bart had a knack for it as well. And Donnell Ellerby did as well in Pease's defense. But mm-hmm. I just, that's, and it, that'll be an interesting thing to see if they can pull that off with their inside line, linebackers going forward. But I, we're going to get into that now. So right. um, talking about t- uh, 2017, right? Well, we, uh, let me bring up my one yeah. player. Let's from, look at from 2018. Up. 2017, I don't think we want to talk about anymore. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, I misspoke there. But, right. uh, <laughs> okay, we're going to bring up my one player from 2006 that we haven't mentioned yet. It was huge. Okay. Was Trevor Price just had an enormous impact on that pass rush. Obviously, he led the team in sacks. But more than that, I mean, he was just a guy who was drawing double teams all the time. And the great Ravens defenses have had that interior pass rusher that could beat double teams or at least dictate how double teams were used against him. And, and Trevor Price beat him um, mm-hmm. and, and beat him on the inside, not on the outside. Uh, he never had another year as good again for the Ravens, though he was a very good player. Uh, but that year he was he was absolutely fantastic. And, and Pernell McPhee is the only Raven otherwise in history who kind of could dictate some of the same things. Sam Adams mm-hmm. in 2000 did a little bit of it, but he didn't play as many snaps. So, uh, you know, Pernell McPhee is the is the other guy who... Uh, you know, the Ravens don't have a guy in 2017 who's like McPhee or Price. But anyway, let's, let's, by all means, let's get to 2018 and, and the... Uh, right, look at, looking, at how the, looking at how the team is now, because it's still early in the offseason. And, I mean, the offseason's been active, but I assume we'll be adding some guys onto this defensive team. Yeah, I, I, you know, getting back to the top, right, like what we wanted to cover here is, is is this transferable, or schematically at least, do they have the personnel to do some of these things? And I, my, my thought is that they do. Uh, and let's just start with some of these pieces, like we touched on uh, Judon a little bit and Bowser. Those are two guys I think are going to be kind of key guys in whatever if Wink's trying to replicate some of the Ryan elements and Ryan principles. Because with Bowser, I mean, the the type of guy that he is, I mean, you just look at what he was doing last year, or they attempted to with him playing more in space. But, I, I mean, he's a, kind of the, the jack-of-all-trades type of guy just to start. Now, we at least in theory, we haven't seen that manifest on the field. He didn't get enough snaps and kind of was a little bit in the doghouse last year. But, but Judon, we saw some of that already. Uh, and just surprisingly, at least, I know we talked about it on one of our previous podcasts, but his ability to drop and cover and his instincts especially. So I think those two guys right off the bat give you uh, some of the flexibility that you would need. I also think the corners, and this is the big thing to me, the corners, the depth of the corners on this 2018 team 
is going to uh, create an opportunity to drum up some some more I would say casino style you know blitzes and, and just taking a little bit more risk. Yeah, I, I got to agree with that. The corners are the are the biggest area of improvement from the 016. The the 016 had real problems in the secondary. McAllister was on the downside. He was on the back nine already. He had, he was put on an island a lot that year, but had 18 penalties. But the the corners on the on the 2017 team and now the 2018 team represent a significant improvement on paper. Right. And we want to see that Jimmy Smith has as good a year after the injury. Right. We want to see that Tavon Young comes back from his injury That's and is right. good. Yep. But they have a lot of depth in the slot right now with, with Kennedy, who I think will move to the outside being there, along with Hill and Tavon. And then they have good depth on the outside as well with Humphrey retaining Carr uh, and having Smith as well. So they've got they've got a lot to work with. Well, let me ask you this. I think Humphrey is, and I, I mean, this is a guy I want to investigate more as we get closer to the season, but I think he is so exceptionally gifted as a man-to-man cover corner that you can, next year, put him on the top guys and t- try to take that approach, a shadow approach. Now, I know Harbaugh had said, and this was part of their defense last year, that that's just not how they play their defense. They, mm-hmm. they don't, they, they keep corners on their sides. But you can do some of that if you, I think, if you want or try to do that next year, how that impacts the rest of the defense, I mean, I'm not going to, um, you know, I can't forecast that now, but I, I just think there's an opportunity just because of how skilled he is, and that could make things even more for for Wink. He, he's got more to work with, I think. Um, and he, there could be more possibilities in his bliss packages, pressure packages, things like that. With having a corner that can shut down the top receiver. Yeah, that that'll that's an exciting option, and you know, you, there's a lot of different theories on that. You could put him on the top receiver. You can also put a man-to-man on number two and just keep them on an island the whole time. Mm-hmm. If you want to do that, I mean, it's, it's kind of an underutilization, you might say, but it allows you to play two-man coverages and, and specialized coverages against the other guy. Um, so either of those are, are, are possible. You and I have talked about this before, but there is something to be said for keeping the cornerbacks on their own side because cornerbacks get used to the sideline and this certain relative positioning of using that boundary over one shoulder right. and, and just their ability to turn for the ball. Some cornerbacks prefer one way, some cornerbacks, just like receivers, prefer to be a left shoulder, right, right shoulder guy. That's true. Yeah, that's right. And, and that's something we don't know with all the way with Humphrey. And also, if you do have a guy playing one receiver chasing all over the field, you're a man. I mean, you're, you're just, you've already declared yeah, you've your, your coverage. However, getting back to Rex, it's like, who cares? I mean, mm-hmm. at that point, we're, we're going to play the style of coverage, and we're just going to come after you. And I think that could, there could be very well more of that. This coming season, and, and and you make the point if you've got the if you've got him on the top guy, you're 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 committed to man on that guy. But I think you, but you can, can still, still build yeah. zone schemes. You around can, that. yeah. It's it's like box and one, box and one in yeah. basketball. It's the same principle. Which I I want I want to see more of that, and I and I think it would be a disservice. And I think this could be again reading between what Martindale had said. You've got the corners. You've invested in the corners. I granted a couple of them are coming back from major injuries. That's the heart of your, your defense is that defensive backfield, and 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 making and also at the at the same token, freeing up Tony Jefferson too. I mean, you made the investment in him too. Use him the way that that he's comfortable and had his best. So I, I'd like to see that that secondary um, put the pressure on those guys, and then your up front rushers Williams, Bowser, Judon, Zadarius Smith. You have a lot of guys to work with. Right. Well, one of the one of the interesting things about Jefferson is I think he's the closest player they have to 
to replicating what Adelis Thomas brought to the team. And it, it does he doesn't match it in terms of size, not by any stretch, but he's a guy who can get right in the face of a big tight end and play him man-to-man. He did so right. very well in Arizona, did not have that role last year. They just did not play that kind of defense against opposing tight ends. And the second half, he was used more closer to the line of scrimmage, made an impact in the run game, but I would like to see him used more in these man-to-man situations in the passing game. And, and one of the things we saw out of Landry in 2006, not to go back too much on this, but Landry would allow outside corners to blitz. So Roll and McAllister blitzed a fair amount because Landry would come up and play mm-hmm. press coverage mm-hmm. on the outside and replace them. And that really worked. I think that could work with Tony Jefferson as well. Tony Jefferson just does not seem to be a great reader and, and have those back-end instincts you need. No. I'm not saying he can't get them. He's still a but That's why he's player. late in zone, right? Like, yeah. he's late to the spots. But if you keep him in man yeah. and you keep him in a rover kind of role, I think that's better for him. They just need – that means Weddle's going to have to play way more disciplined as a center fielder too. That's right. Just, I thought he was good. The second half last yeah. year, I thought he was good at getting the bracket coverage. You know, how – how many, how few times I've seen good bracket coverage since Reed left and before Weddle joined the team was just incredible. But we had a, we had a good amount of bracket coverage last year that developed, I thought, down the field. Why why yeah. do you think that took half the year for Weddle to get that down? Is it the transition to a new team and new scheme, or that it is it is more of uh, what I would call probably misusage by Pease that they so. tried to have two safeties who are interchangeable pieces rather than having more defined roles for them. So Weddle's up closer to the line of scrimmage, and two games really stood out to me. One is the missed tackle against Chicago obviously cost them the game when they were trying to play a closer line of scrimmage in a run support role. And the second one was against Pittsburgh, he was constantly getting wiped out in the power run game because they were trying to use him in that role. And it just, you know, he's too small to do that. Tony Jefferson is a better, more more physical athlete at this point in his career. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, so that's... To me, that's going to be a big, big thing that gets uh, resolved. I, I got to think. Yeah, that that sounds hopeful. Then, if it was a game plan issue and not a uh, personnel issue, then that's something that they can easily build on. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, do they have one-to-one personnel to these other Ryan defenses? No, but they have components, and I think there's going to be changes made strategically with what they do pre-snap, which is what we touched on, especially. And also how they use these uh, defensive backs to their advantage and, and getting after the, the quarterback. That's my take on it. Right. So if, you mentioned Bowser and Judon, and, and it's both of those guys need to be two-way Sam linebackers for the Ravens, and they can both do it. They can drop the mm-hmm. coverage. They can, they can rush the passer as needed. We, I still have some questions as to whether Bowser in particular is going to be the edge setter they need, but that may not be his role. That may not be the downs he's on the field. Uh, he, he, does, he does sort of suffer in the sense that he's behind Judon, so it's harder to get him snaps in some sense. Yeah. But w- in the same sense, Williams is behind Suggs, and they need to find some way to get him set up for some opportunities because we've got a great pass rusher potentially sitting on the bench there. That Hey, uh, look, if uh, the Eagles are able to figure it out, I think yeah. these guys have to be able to figure it out. You've got to be able to, to rotate. And, look, Suggs has been here. We, we know he's he's – Potentially the Hall of Famer, but talk to Suggs and say, "Look, we got to reduce your snaps a bit. We got to get these guys on the field more." And I don't think it's going to be a problem. I, I think you just have to have that conversation with them. But yeah, ro- uh, rotationally substitutions, even you know, for that ma- matter, you know, Kamalea Correa, I think is a guy that could be interesting too in this. In that, his his he's going to I think 
eventually get more into a rush opportunity. I don't have anything to go off of. This is just you know my my initial thought. And if they find an inside linebacker, a real inside linebacker that can play side you know beside Mosley, I think that's another guy you could see in the mix. But it, they have a lot of numbers to work that's, with anyway. That's, so right. that's the problem. Yeah, they're they're five deep at outside linebacker already, and they're playing already Zadarius Smith out of position on the inside, where they're actually minimizing his value, in my opinion. They're they're by moving him inside, you're actually restricting. He had much more success rushing from the outside this last year. So I, I don't see a spot for Correa on this team. I think he'll basically finish out his Ravens career as long as it lasts. And it may last one more year, it may last two, mm-hmm. as pretty much a special teams player where he's been not bad. And, and it's, it's, you know, it is what it is. The Ravens will draft a linebacker inside this year. If they don't draft an inside linebacker, they're going to get a three-down thumper from somewhere. They're not that hard to find. You know, and then right, have, they've they, found him through the undrafted ranks anyway, right? So, yeah. but I think, yeah, at least investing a late round pick, scouring free agency if you want to try to get a Bernardo Hare, a better pass coverage yeah. guy than Bernardo Harris. But I'm just pointing out another name, like a guy that you can bring in a veteran. They need to do that. I think last year they they dropped the ball a bit on that position in terms mm-hmm. of how they handled it. Uh, but yeah, I agree. There's a lot to work with, and that's the good thing. You have a lot of numbers they just got to see the field and i think that's the key martindale's ability to to utilize all these guys yeah yeah so that'll that'll definitely be uh be a good one what i want to say anything more on that we got only one guy on the entire team heading to free agency on the entire defense heading free agency after this year that's Sidaria smith so a mm-hmm. bunch of second year players now graduating to their junior years we'll call it the third year and uh, that's very exciting about this defense, but it's going to be more antifying in 2019 when all these guys in the last year and we have to decide who we're signing. Well, that's why they have to uh, maximize what they have right now. Got to get it done. <laughs> well, and, and with, uh, with Harbaugh going into this season on the hot seat and, and everyone watching anyway, it's all these young players is going to either be they're going to come together and do really well, or it's another excuse and leading towards a 2019 kind of blowing things up and well, redoing. Exactly right, right. I mean, they're all in the hot seat. That's a wink is on ostensibly winks on the hot seat, right? Like he he's sure. looking at it. He had one year. He didn't. He had an awful year. Not all of it's his fault. Mm-hmm. And he's looking at. I think it's just going to be interesting. I don't think this guy is going to hold back. There's no reason for him to hold back. He's been waiting his entire career for this opportunity again. And the the quotes, again, is very telling to me, the way he spoke in that press conference as a guy that was like, I, I think to some extent he was respectful to, of peace, but I think just very much was like, look, like we're, we're going to have to change things up. Mm-hmm. Or at least I'm going to change things up. That's that's my style. And I'm going to go down the way I'm going to go down. It's like with Rex, I mean, he would do the same thing. Rex will go down with three corners and and that's his package he'll play with three corners Mm -hmm. and figure something out and if that's how he's going to go down he's going to go down swinging but that's where i see wink in in terms of their similarities that part i see being very similar to the ryan's oh it's it's no doubt about it i mean if i had to sum up peas in a nutshell of how he'd do it is he wanted to put just enough pressure on the minimum amount of pressure to make the quarterback uncomfortable and make some mistakes on his own whereas ryan it's Let's go with a lot of pressure and see if that works, and then we'll stick with it. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, it just it, totally, totally different starting philosophy or default setting for the amount of pressure they, they had. And that's not to say, Ken, that it didn't drive me crazy when he had some of those pressures, when I'm yeah. like, why are you doing this with Tom Brady in the red zone or something like that, yeah. where it's like, it's just, 
it's too much of a, of a gamble. But I, I really, uh, with Pease, the thing that frustrated me was a lot of those, the fourth down play against the Bengals, mm-hmm. the thing that stands out to me is you have Mosley and Weddle in no man's land. Mm-hmm. On that play, you bring them. Just bring them. Or don't bring them. And rush three. I don't care. But don't have them sitting in, in the middle there. We we got to talk a minute about this play then. So Okay, so Mosley's job on that play was to trail that slot receiver and, in, in theory, impede the passing lane on that. But you start him in the A-gap. You start him in the A-gap yeah. on that play and have him drop the line of scrimmage. Right. You could not have disadvantaged him right. more in terms of that coverage. And it left him with a wide-open throw. And it was an inverted zone coverage, so they had Weddle um, up essentially, I think, to take care of Bernard, sorry, of Bernard, had he gotten the ball. And the truth of the matter is, Bernard would have been a really tough out to stop for a first down there if he had gotten a short pass in the middle of the field. I mean, he's very elusive, and and he'd been a tough guy to start. But you're gambling a field goal versus gambling a touchdown. Exactly. And and so they they let Boyd get open down the field, and and uh, and I, I you know Kennedy made three mistakes on the play. First of all, they asked him to play safety. That's not his mistake. That's Pease's mistake. He hadn't played safety the whole year basically. Mm-hmm. But they but they. First of all, he took a step to the outside, and that guy didn't need extra coverage. Then he took a step back to the inside, but it was too deep, and then he missed the tackle. So right. th- three mistakes on the same play, but uh, Kennedy had a, had a fine year. He's one of the guys I'm really looking forward to see play, but, yep. uh, but that didn't go well. No. All right, so you, you guys just spent a whole lot of time uh, praising Rex Ryan and his schemes. Why didn't he work out as a head coach? Well... Did he or did he not work out as a head coach? Because I, yeah. I don't think he's a he had some success, right? Mm-hmm. And then he completely. It, it, it seems to me his style is good for what it was, right? Like a short run, but you're not going to be able to have long term sustained success doing it the right way. Uh, I don't know. It, it seemed like there was a lot. And in terms of being a head coach, he let a lot of things slide. I mean, he had a loose locker room, mm-hmm. and I think the formula he wanted to build was totally dependent on that defense. They had, obviously, Sanchez as quarterback. So there's a number of things that I think just were, were wrong that he took in terms of it was a short-term fix, but I don't think it was translatable to long-term success the way they built that team. Well, I mean, in, in some sense, I look at the Sanchez years as similar to the Bowler years and that you, you had a quarterback who really wasn't probably going to get it done. Right, and was holding the team back, but Rex's defense was was keeping the team together. And I forget, I actually forget in New York was Rex actually calling the defensive plays, or did he have a defensive coordinator working for him? Who was? I thought he had Donnie Henderson as his defensive okay. coordinator, if I'm not mistaken. So probably yeah. very much under the wing, but yeah, <laughs> uh, you you would think I, it's just hard for me to imagine Rex really taking his thumb off the defense when it really <laughs> comes to it. But his time in Buffalo, I mean, the players kept playing for him. Is it wasn't that wasn't the problem? I mean, the players loved him. Right, uh, and you know, it's, it, that sometimes that's a problem. They love you a little bit too much, or the or the coaches a little bit too much enjoys being loved by the players, so he lets them yeah, get away the, with crap. The players' coach. Now, don't get it, let's not get it twisted. Like I think the 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 whole discussion here is that you've got a guy in Martindale who's essentially in that Rex family tree and has ties to the Ryan. So I think that's part of also why we're talking about this in a big way. If it was, if we're looking at it, I, I think Ryan's clearly their best defense. Well, you can make the case of Marvin Lewis. They've had so many, like Marvin Lewis, Rex Ryan, Chuck Pagano for one year was excellent. So it's not, I don't, for me at least, Ken, I'm not speaking for you, but for me, I'm not saying Rex was perfect by any means. It's more, I think there's some things principally I see Wink doing that that are going to match up a little more with what Ryan did and I think could really also work well for the the, uh, team dynamic that they have right now on defense. 
Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I think that they have a lot of assets, uh, both on the back end and on the front end, which can generate a big pass rush and create mistakes. And this is already a team that led the league in interceptions and passes defense. Uh, they did so in 2006 and 2008 as well, by the way. And, uh, you know, it's it, it, I, I'm excited for this to be back as the Ravens' way of playing football. And I, I don't know about you, Deb. I love watching good defensive football. It's like nothing better. I like it better than good offensive. I love that and, and running the football. Those two are so okay. complementary. If you're able to run the ball and physically maul teams, it's yeah. a changed game now. But, yeah, I mean, defense is still awesome. And when you're playing it at a high level, as we've seen, I think that the defense has been fair the last couple of years under Peace. Mm-hmm. But it has not been what it, I think, was in terms of all of the hype, it just hasn't matched up. And I don't know that it will this year either. I, I, I don't think that's the, the concern. I think it's more stylistically, philosophically, I think they're going to do some different things than they have and, and clearly get back to kind of what they were before. Right. Well, this was P's best year as a DC with the Ravens, I think I'd say. I, I think you're right. I think they'll, they'll, it'll be a stylistically a year where we'll see a lot more blitzes I expect to see a lot closer to 332 blitzes than to 122 blitzes or whatever the number was. Yeah, 122 this year. So uh, uh, we'll see on that. Uh, we won't obviously have a Dallas Thomas on the team, but we'll enjoy the players as they are. And I'm excited for the draft and who they pick up. I still think Derwin James would be the guy I'd most like to have for the defense if they do go defense in round one. Uh, offensive tackle to me is a greater need. Uh, so I think that, that they're so short, and I heard your remarks on uh, with Tony on the show, mm-hmm. but I just think they're so, so short at offensive tackle. Here's, here's the issue with me is this, is they really need three guys who can play offensive tackle. There's only one on the team now who can do it. And I'm not including Marshall Yonda, because Marshall Yonda could be the best player at four positions for the Ravens. But once they move Yonda, every bit of flexibility the team has is gone for the year. So if they, if they make Yonda the center in camp, it, it destroys the flexibility because you can't move him from center right. to right tackle. You you, you you got a lot of guys who can play guard, but you don't have you don't have the uh, you know you only have one guy who can move to the, any of the four other positions. So I can't, I don't even want to think about what would happen if Stanley went down this year in terms of what they have. But they need two tackles. They need a guy they can they can bring in as a free agent, and they're going to need a draft pick tackle of some sort that they can plug in, and he'll be effective right away at right tackle and be at least a decent pass blocker. Yeah, I agree with that. They definitely need they need a couple more right now, and I don't think the I don't think the answer is James Hurst. I know that's been the talk this week whether he can handle it. I think it's I don't I don't put much stock into that statement from Harbaugh. Um, he's a guard. He's playing tackle. You have Alex Lewis, who's a guard who would be playing tackle. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are all not not viable solutions at the moment. I agree with that, and uh, you know I think they still could pick Austin Howard back up. I think that's still an option, um, and especially after the draft. I think if he's still out there, I would I would have no issues bringing him back on a cheap contract on a one-year yeah. vet minimum type of deal. Now, they used him a lot. He's, he's a good run blocker. He has his problems as a pass blocker. He's still very slow feet, and the Ravens had more help for their tackles than any other NFL team according to pro football focus. So mm-hmm. it's one of these things where they did have to use a lot of offensive assets in a hidden way chip blocking that's and doing other a things. Good point. Yeah, yeah, they did. And that's part of the, the benefit of having a Greg Roman who knows how to use tight ends and emphasizing the blocking scheme first, pass protections. But yeah, you want to be able to, I mean, the offense needs guys out on routes. 
Let's, let's change topics for one second here because the defense obviously is not necessarily having a make-or-break year because you still have a lot of young players. But they do have some decisions to make on some other players like Eric Weddle. And my thought on this is a lot of that's going to be tied to the future of Joe Flacco. So if Joe Flacco is gone after the 2018 season, which is a possibility with a split of $8 million of cap mm-hmm. charge per year in, in 19 and 20, then you could see a fair number of other releases coming at the same time. So it's very possible that, that it'll be the end of Weddle. It could be possibly the end of Suggs as well. Um, if that's the case. And we don't know when, but Marshall Yanda is not going to play forever and and uh, could be his next injury is his last. Right, and that's also, what, what, when you look at C.J. Mosley, too, I mean, in terms of do you, you give him a, a long-term contract, I think that type of a decision is, is um, a lot of that's kind of up in the air, too, because it's do you invest the dollars in that direction? I mean, with DaCosta coming in and then, you know, if things don't work out again this year, you're looking at a new. I think there's a strong chance that he may want to go get another head coach. So then the whole you know philosophy shift could be there. Like, do you give a Mosley a large contract and pay him like a Bobby Wagner and Luke Keekley and these types of guys? When that position, it's been proven now around the league that you can find inside linebackers and not necessarily invest a premium. You're not going to get Luke Keekley, but you're going to get functional guys that can cover, they can play the run, they can blitz. So that's what I see, too. I agree. There's a lot of big decisions, domino effect, based on you know what Flacco does and how they play, and if Flacco's able to show that he's got a couple more years left. Also, if they draft a quarterback in round, I don't know, three, mm-hmm. like even round two could, could might not be a stretch with mm-hmm. like a Lamar Jackson or someone. So still a lot <laughs> of things that draft-wise, rest of free agency, that could really impact um, how the team is uh, handled. Yeah, that'll, that'll be one of the really interesting things the, the, in, in terms of where they draft a quarterback. And I'll be looking at the draft, and, and just it, it, it's always hanging over the head. Is it, Does it come in around two? Does it come in around three? Does it come in around four? Yeah. Does it come at all? I mean, the, the Ravens drafted a bunch of sixth and seventh round guys in the past in, in you know, Tyra Taylor and yeah. uh, going back further to Wes Pate and, you know, guys right. that they hit Harris. But why would, why would you go for a quarterback this season? Because if it fails with Flacco, then Harbaugh's gone too, you would assume. And wouldn't you want to then draft, let the new head coach pick who he wants his quarterback to be? I think the idea would be you'd have a developmental year if a Flacco injury came up or if a Flacco ineffectiveness forced it, that you could, you could get some games under a belt for a guy who is in a third, fourth, fifth, sixth round pick. Yeah, yeah. that's a fair point too, Josh. I mean, honestly, if... If they're looking at it like, okay, look, all of the chips are on Flacco and Harbaugh. And if they don't get it done, they don't get to the playoffs, they don't... In the case of Flacco, it, and this was t- we, we covered this on the panel this morning, Harbaugh coming out directly and saying, I, I think Flacco's got to work with the receivers. I mean, we, we haven't heard that before. Nobody's come out and said anything to, about Flacco uh, like that. To me, that, that signifies that there's a little, they're turning up the heat a little bit, and he's got to start responding. And he's got to respond in a way that says he's got three seasons or some, something left in the tank of good football in him, and much better football than what he's played. And if that, if that doesn't come across, and I think one year is hard as a sample size for that, mm-hmm. it could all be figured out. But if that doesn't come across, then, yeah, then you're starting from scratch, you're starting over again. And that, to your point, all these veterans 
or, or maybe it's the start of a, a complete purge and a rebuild, and, and that could be what's going on. But uh, yeah, I mean, then at, at that point, you, you look at next year's draft, depending on how things go in terms of how they perform, the Ravens perform this year. Mm-hmm. Will they be in position to even get a top quarterback? They usually, right. they usually don't tank it that badly. Yeah. I mean, so that's there too. Yeah, the defense is just too good on this team, and that's one of the reasons why I don't want to give up. But you know, an analogy that I, I make about the salary cap is that you're, you're constantly borrowing against the future, and it's kind of like being a hockey announcer. Hockey announcers, when they do radio in particular, they have to talk at an incredible rate. And you know, some hockey announcers have been known to go up to 300 words per minute, and they just talk very fast. But I just got to imagine what it's like to have to take a breath as you're, you know, 20 seconds into your shift, so to speak, in terms of announcing it. Uh, okay, this is what's happened to the Ravens is they just have to borrow and borrow and borrow more from the future, which means they have really less to spend. They're very tight. And at some point, they're going to need to take a breath on the cap. They're going to need to say, you know what, we have to have a rebuilding year. We have to allow some contracts to go. They did it in 2002. It was painful, but it wasn't that painful. It was great to see all those young players. It was a 7-9 and nine season that, that almost made the playoffs. You know, they were still very much in attention. The key to that was the draft, their yeah. ability to draft and find and, and source players yeah. that they could play that could you know contribute, and you're still going to keep a core group. The problem is, I, I think as well, how many... I mean, if you look back at that team, they have, I mean, we know we have Ray Lewis and Hall of Fame kind of guys. We're not even talking about that. I'm talking about, like, top ten at their position type of players on this roster. They right. have a couple. They have a handful. But can't even really build around the core nucleus of guys that they have right now. So it's this draft is going to be so critical in that respect. And if DaCosta is really, I mean, he's taking over, of course, but if there's actual major or even, I would say, significant changes and in, in approaches here, um, you know, they're going to have to start getting results immediately, Saints-style. Like, the way the Saints hit home runs with those picks, right. and they immediately know, okay, we have three, four guys out of this draft that we can build around. They, they really need that big right. time. They need, they need a, a draft that's better than three fourth-year starters. They need, they need to get, yeah. you know, three guys who are starters, you know, maybe two in year one and one in year two, and, you know... But, if they if they did what the Saints did, obviously that's one of the great drafts of all time. Yeah, and that's eighty three Bears and other that's teams. over the top in yeah. terms of expectation. But they've got to start. If it's not this year, I mean, it's two years, two drafts, mm-hmm. going back to what they did even when they started their franchise, right? Like Ray Lewis and John Ogden, we know are Hall of Famers, but even just getting your Bullware, your Sharper, mm-hmm. your Tim Herrings, guys like that, you got to draft much better at the top, right? And that's where they're totally missing. Yeah, but. All right, well, for going into a playoff or bust season, you guys are giving me some hope and some stuff to be excited about and, and watch this defense, but it's still April. We still have lots of time to go. <laughs> we still have the draft coming up. I'm sure we'll do some shows around the draft. Um, but what else is going on? Dev, what are you writing this offseason right, currently for Russell Street? Yeah, so there's a, an article that I'll be working on uh, I don't know if it's going to come out soon. It, it might might be something right before the draft. Uh, so it, it's it's around whether or not the Ravens really did improve by bringing in Crab, Crabtree and John Brown mm-hmm. versus Wallace and Macklin. Uh, I'm not going to say right now, but you guys can can <laughs> wait on that one. Sure. I'll probably have that out sometime before the draft because I don't want them to draft two receivers, and that kind of just blows out the entire <laughs> discussion point. Sure. Um, and then otherwise, uh, you know, there's 
you know, there's going to be some post-draft musings on my part. Everybody can look out for me uh, on Twitter as well, at DevPanchwa, um, and, you know, pretty active on Twitter, too. So that, that's, what I'm, yeah. that's what I'm working on. Dev's a great follow on Twitter, and I really appreciate the discussion that we get into every other day, probably, mm-hmm. in terms of, of some good football point, and uh, definitely a good follow there. Uh, Josh, tell a little bit about your show, too. Uh, yeah, my show is Section 336, and it's uh, Baltimore sports talk, but it's really heavy Baltimore Orioles talk. So it's baseball season now, and that's the show to listen to, and we'll get into it with arguments over uh, stupid things uh, that happen at the ball game, and uh, it's a bunch of it's me and my brothers, and it's like we're sitting around, like guys sitting around at the bar arguing about uh, whatever's going on in the baseball games that week. Uh, and you love all sabermetric discussion, don't you, Josh? Uh, <laughs> we we uh, we'll we'll take that into account, but we're big believers in the eye in the eye test. Very good. Well. Now I know you really don't like sabermetrics. I, I, I but uh, <laughs> I was just kind of baiting you there. We're we're learning. We're adjusting, just like just like just like coaches. We're 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 it's being forced upon us, and we're learning and we're watching. But I still think defensive metrics don't mean anything. I don't think they're up to that yet. Okay, very good. Very good. Okay, so that's uh, that's great. I'd highly recommend Josh's show, 336. I've been on it as a guest a couple of times. It's a lot of fun, and they do a really good job. Josh has an incredible professional studio in his house. You go down to the basement there, they got really you know, yeah, exactly the kind of microphones you'd see in a, in a, uh, a, a studio. Little, a little bit, yes. But, yes, audio quality and making sure we uh, – Sound good is important to our show. So, Ken, right. how about you? What's going on with you this off season? Well, I got got a few things happening. I'm working on a, on some analysis projects right now, going back. But the big thing I want to do next is a Ring of Honor project, where I'm going to try and put a metric on various Ravens who are not yet in the Ring of Honor to see relative scoring, how close are they? So that'll be just a fun piece to well, do to see. Well, that includes uh, Brian Billick. Brian Billick, Brian Billick is, is harder to, there. to measure. Yeah, harder to measure on the same scale as the players. So I probably wouldn't, other than to you know have a paragraph about him on the side. But okay. you know, you know, Kelly Gregg, Adelis Thomas, Bart Scott, players like that are all uh, on the list of players. Matt Burke to be considered for the McAllister. McAllister for sure. Yeah. So so just the doghouse. Yeah, Team McAllister. I I am all about him getting in. That's okay. ridiculous. That he's not, if he's to this point, he should have gotten in. Well, I think a lot of the people who are around will have forgiven him for what he did in 2003 and other times <laughs> let the team down. But you're right, he's he's a great enough player that he should have gotten in no matter what. But uh, but the 2003 season, that game at San Diego, I asked Ozzie Newsome about it once and, and, and he mm-hmm. refused to answer wow. <laughs> what exactly happened. Well, there you go. So that says everything. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, this was another film study with Ken McCusick. I'm sure we'll be back closer to draft with uh, more. So make sure you stay subscribed and uh, keep on following us and follow everyone on Twitter as we uh, prep for another football season. Dev, thanks for joining us today. Just want to add that and love to have you back and love to include you as a more regular part of the show this coming year. Sounds good. We'll, we'll see and uh, looking forward to joining you guys on, on more podcasts going forward. So this was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me.
At Lowe's, we're your go-to for great gardening values every day. That's why we've lowered our price on select bagged mulch, now starting at just $2.88 a bag. Mulch helps prevent weeds and retains moisture, and when you put it down around trees, shrubs, and flower beds, you'll see how beautiful it makes your outdoor space, just in time to welcome back family and friends. Shop online and pick up in-store. Lowe's, home to the best part of summer. Selection and product availability vary by location. While supplies last, U.S. only. Excludes Alaska and Hawaii. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.